Well, we haven't even finished the first chapter of Colossians, though we've been in Colossians for about a month, and we're already going to be taking a, a brief pause from our time in Colossians to mark the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther posting his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, in response to the Roman Catholic Church's practice of selling indulgences. The practice of indulgences is a practice in which a person would pay a specified amount of money to the church, and then the church would declare that person's temporal punishment from God to be absolved. And this was a corrupt practice that was used uh, to fleece God's people for money. So people were told, you, you buy this indulgence and, and your punishment this side of heaven or even in purgatory and another uh, false teaching that made its way into the church during this time period that we'll be looking at. Uh, th- these things were going on. And Luther's posting of his 95 theses is an event considered by many as the spark that would ignite the Protestant Reformation throughout all of Europe. Therefore, as a Protestant church, though we're not a Lutheran church, we are a Protestant church, we want to celebrate this important moment in church history, 500-year anniversary. And to recognize and celebrate this extremely important event in church history, this Sunday we will begin a three-part sermon series that will have us looking at the importance of the Reformation in the past, but also in the present and the ongoing importance of the Reformation in the future. To do this, we'll be considering key passages that relate to the Reformation. And the first passage is going to be Romans 1.17. So if you would, if you have a Bible, please turn there. Romans 1.17. I will begin with verse 16 to give us a little bit of context for verse 17. In the Pew Bible, you can find this passage on page 939. Why this passage? There's a lot of passages that were very important in the Reformation, But what's so significant about Romans 1.17 in relation to the Reformation? It was, as theologian R.C. Sproul puts it, the verse that turned the lights on for Martin Luther. And what he means is that this verse solidified Martin Luther's understanding of justification by faith alone. For this reason, it is the ideal passage for us to start this series on the Reformation with because justification by faith alone was at the very heart of the Reformation. So Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. And now let's pray for his help. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this verse that you have given to us through the Apostle Paul, that you used in the life of Martin Luther to bring about a great and powerful reformation in your church. Lord, we need your help. I need your help this morning. I don't want to give a lecture on church history, though I love church history. Father, I want to preach your word and point people to Jesus, the only hope for sinners. And so I pray, Father, that you would overcome the deficiencies in me and that your perfect, beautiful, precious word would go forth to all who have ears to hear it. 
Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters among us in this local church who are struggling this week, who maybe have taken their eyes off Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would use this sermon, the songs that we're singing, the prayers that we're praying together to fix their eyes back on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. Father, we come together on Sundays not simply to go through a religious duty, but to enjoy you, to be reminded of the gospel, to be refreshed by the truth that though we were great sinners, you are a great Savior, and you sent your Son to redeem all who would trust in him. Father, may this promise, may this gospel reality refresh your people this morning. We pray for those who are struggling physically, who, who have ailments, who have cancer, who are, who are on their deathbed. Father, we pray that, that Christ would be their focus, their joy, their hope, and the resurrection would be right before them as they are faced with the reality that this life is fleeting, that we don't have all the time in the world. You give us a certain amount of time, and that's it. And so may you remind them of what they believe, that Jesus died so that they would live now and forever. And Father, now as we look at the Reformation, and more importantly, Romans 1, 16 and 17, do what you can only do by your Spirit. Open our eyes, refresh us, strengthen our hearts, and grant faith and repentance where it is needed. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. I don't have this in my notes, and this is always, I've said this before, dangerous ground for me to just all of a sudden share something that I think I should share. I grew up Lutheran. Um, I, I'm very thankful for the, the education I received in my Lutheran high school. I, at the time, was not thankful at all for my catechism classes that I was forced to go to. I think I picked up some truth there, though, because though I was not saved, converted until college, those ancient truths, those glorious realities that I was taught from the time that I can remember came flooding back one night in college after hearing the gospel. God, by his grace and his providence, had put all of these, these rock-solid truths in my head, though they hadn't made their way down to my heart. And so I give this sermon as a Baptist, very thankful for Martin Luther and what God did and used Martin Luther to do, not just for Lutherans, but for all Protestants. Now, before we look more closely at Martin Luther and the role of Romans 1.17 in relation to the Reformation, I think it's very helpful, even important, to make two initial observations. First, the truths that Martin Luther and other reformers like John Calvin and William Tyndale, John Knox, and Ulrich Zwingli proclaimed during the Reformation were not new doctrines, they were old truths that had been, for various reasons, hidden, lost, or confused within the church. The five solas, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to God alone be the glory, which summarize the central teachings of the Reformation, are in fact ancient truths, doctrines that find their real beginning, not in the 16th century Reformation, but in the God of the Bible, who has revealed them to us in and through his word. So we're not talking really about anything new. We're talking about a rediscovery, a reclaiming of the ancient truths. The Reformation was not about starting something new, but about doing just that, returning to what is true. The word of God, the Bible, 
and what God reveals in the scriptures about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're talking about. That's why this is such an important event. This is why we're remembering. This is why we're pausing Colossians to consider for three weeks the Reformation. History has this this way, and and I, I say this as a Christian, of repeating itself. When we don't know where we came from, we're likely to make the mistakes that people made before us. So let's learn from them. And that's our hope in this series. But to be clear, the Reformation was a movement back to the Bible, a movement back to the Bible as the final authority in the church and for Christians. Luther and the other reformers did not plan to split at all from Rome. It was only after the Pope and others in power refused to reform the church according to the clear teaching of the Word of God that in protest, protest, the Protestant, protest is in the word, the Protestant church began. They saw no other way. There was no other way. The Pope, the, those in leadership in the Roman Catholic Church would not change, would not shift. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, the theology at the heart of the Roman Catholic Church has not changed, even after Vatican II. A second observation is that Luther wasn't the first to confront the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and work to bring about church reform and gospel clarity. There were many others before Luther who sacrificed much, even their very lives, for the same truths that Luther and the other reformers would proclaim in the 16th century. The Englishman John Wycliffe, who died nearly 100 years before Martin Luther was born, was one of them. Wycliffe was ordained as a Catholic priest and served the church as a seminary professor, training the next generation of priests in the 14th century. Wycliffe, like the reformers after him, rejected the papacy, argued that scripture alone should be the final authority in the church, denied the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, and against church law, he translated the Bible into English, He was the first one to do this so that everyone in England could read, and and many of them couldn't read, so that, that if they couldn't read, they could hear the Bible in their own native language. We're talking something like tribal missions in England where the Bible was, but nobody could read it or understand it because they didn't know Latin. For this, he is known as the Morning Star of the Reformation and one of the world's largest organizations dedicated to translating the Bible in modern languages, Wycliffe Bible Translators, is actually named in his honor. There was also John Huss, who having been influenced by the work of Wycliffe, sought to bring about reformation in the church in Bohemia. And for arguing the very same truths that, that Wycliffe argued and Luther would later teach, Huss was burned as a heretic in 1415, 102 years before Luther's 95 theses were posted on the church doors. And there had been many other priests and theologians and leaders in the church, like Wycliffe and and Huss, who studied the scriptures because they were trained in in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. And as they did it, the, the gospel came forth and shined brightly. And so they began to preach the truth. So Martin Luther, to be clear, wasn't the first to seek to reform the church according to Scripture. And he didn't come up with the truths that were at the heart of the Reformation. They were, and they are, God's truths. But Luther, more than any other single individual, was used by God to usher in the Protestant Reformation. And so that's why a Baptist church is talking about Martin Luther, the the figurehead of Lutheranism, right now on a Sunday, and I don't feel bad at all about doing that. Martin Luther was born in 
Eisleben, Eisleben, German. I'm German, but I, you know, I'm, 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 this is true. I looked up words. I made sure I was trying to pronounce them right. Well, let's do it again. Eisleben. I, I, I practiced that one. He was born there. I'll just not say it again. He was born there in Germany in the year 1483 to Hans and Margarita Luther, who, like every other German, were Catholics, at least in name. Same thing happens today. Catholics in name. Now, to give you a frame of reference, this means that Martin was nine years old when Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, when he went to the New World. Martin's father was a prosperous miner who wanted his very intelligent son, and that became quickly clear to Hans and Margarita that, that Martin Luther was intelligent. They wanted him to become a lawyer, in part to advance the family's name among other people, but also because Hans wanted a retirement plan. Remember, there's, there's no 401k plans. You, you don't invest in the stock market when, when it's 1483 or, or you know, around that time. You hope and you pray and you do as much as you can to to train up your children so that you have a retirement plan. They get rich, then you're rich with them. That's the goal. At least it was for Hans. And Martin was on track to do just that, studying law at the university. But in God's providence, while Luther was traveling back to school after a visit with his parents, he, he was caught in an intense thunderstorm. And remember, theology was, was, was distorted. It was, it was very much confused, and, and we'll see that more. And so in this thunderstorm, a lightning bolt knocked Luther to the ground. Scared him. He thought he was going to die. And thinking that God was out to get him, in desperation, he cried out, not to Jesus Christ for help, but to St. Anne, the Roman Catholic patron saint of minors, who he was very familiar with because that was his father's profession. While waiting out the storm, he made a vow that if his life was spared, he would become a monk. And after the storm, against his father's wishes, remember, monks don't make a lot of money. There goes the retirement plan for Hans. Well, Martin kept his word, and he became an Augustinian monk. Despite surviving the thunderstorm, Martin's soul remained in torment. He thought that, that in dedicating his life to God by becoming a monk, he would find peace with God. Instead, the harder he tried, the harder Luther tried to get right with God by following the church's teachings, the more that he realized that nothing he could do could justify him before a holy and righteous God. Martin Luther was on a desperate pursuit for peace that he could not find. See, Luther, the former law student, became an expert in the law of God. And as he looked at God's law, it functioned like a mirror, revealing to Luther how holy God is, and how unholy he was. So as hard as Luther tried, as, and, and he tried hard. If you look at, at his, his story and, and read a biography on Luther, he was trying hard as much as he did. And, and, and he, did a, he, did, he did much, much more than us. It was never enough to justify himself before a holy God. But still, Luther kept trying. And every attempt to get closer to God ended with Luther in despair, driving him further away from God. He would fast. He would pray. He would confess his sins to his confessor and be given a list of things to do, and he would do it, and he would do more than he was told to do. And every single time at the end, as he reflected on if he thought he was now more righteous and able to stand before a holy God, he came to the conclusion, the right conclusion, that he could not. At one point, Luther, in despair over his inability to be right before a righteous God, even declared to his confessor 
that sometimes he hated God, at least the God that he knew as a Roman Catholic monk. Seeing no other option, Luther continued to try to satisfy the the demands of God's law, but peace with God continued to elude him. So here's this monk doing everything he can according to the teachings of the church that he serves, that he's given his life to. And he knows that based on his actions and his unrighteousness, his sin, he's not at peace with God. Why did this happen? How, How could this happen? Well, in a recent article on Luther and the Reformation, church historian Stephen Nichols writes, Luther's downward spiral had everything to do with the obscuring of the word of God and the consequent obscuring of the gospel. The whole Roman Catholic system depended on the quantification of sin and the quantification of grace. The problem is sins or demerits. The solution is grace-enabled merits. The church consequently preached a false gospel of works to counter these demerits. The church also falsely taught that when this life is finished and demerits are still left over, well, the next stage, you've got to pay for that. The next stage is purgatory. In purgatory, the final demerits are purged and souls are readied for heaven. Well, the sad reality was at that time in history, there was no Bible translation in the language of the common person that one could could open up and turn to and say, hey, priest, where are you getting this stuff you're saying from? There's no evidence of this doctrine of penance in the scriptures. Or Pope, how can you claim to speak for Christ on earth when what you say contradicts the very words of Christ? The only Bibles were in Latin, and the only people who could read or understand Latin were the highly educated who were very much invested in the Roman Catholic system. That's where they had power. That's how they kept their power and advanced in society. And of course, as you might have guessed it, who else knew Latin? The priests the clergy who had been taught it. So this means people in Luther's day would go to church, they'd watch a priest do various ceremonial things, and then hear him read the Bible in a language that they did not understand. So God's people were being deprived of his word, which led the church into spiritual darkness. It was the spiritual dark age. And it brought about great gospel confusion. Even those like Luther who had access to scripture were trapped by the various authorities the various traditions and the church's interpretations, which had been elevated from below the scriptures to equal with the scriptures. In that type of situation, no one, not even a monk like Luther, could find true and lasting peace with God. Everybody was trapped. Now, some today might wonder if Martin Luther's biggest problem was was his low self-esteem, that he was prone to melancholy or depression, that he, he, he really just should have thought more highly of himself. But that's, that's a modern answer to the problem of sin. Just think happy thoughts. You read the Bible and you, you, you have even like a half good doctrine of sin. You can't come to that conclusion. And the problem is just that people have a low self-esteem. That wasn't the problem. A look at a few other verses in Romans, if we just stick in the book of Romans, is going to make it quite clear that Luther had a right view of himself. That his doctrine of sin wasn't the issue. Romans 3.10 states that none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, addressing the effects of the fall for all of humanity, when Adam sinned in the garden, states, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
See, Luther didn't have too low of a view of himself. It's that he had a right understanding of his sin and God's holiness. He knew what his biggest problem was. He was a sinner by birth and by choice, and God is a holy and righteous judge. And so these two don't match. No matter how much good you do as a sinner, the, the, the problem is not on the outside. The problem is in the heart. That's the root issue, is the heart. This was a Luther's biggest problem, and friends, it is our biggest problem too, sin. But many today do not think that they need to be right before God because they don't think they're all that bad. And they don't fear God because rather than God being holy, today to many, God is simply loving. And by loving, you know what they mean? Accepting of sin. That, that's the new definition of loving. You just accept me for who I am. What if who I am and what I say I am doesn't line up with the scriptures? One of them's got to give. Luther said the scriptures can't give. So many today are saying the scriptures will give and I will be my own authority. It's not church tradition today, at least not for most. It's a person deciding that they will be God rather than God being God. So people today judge themselves not based on God's standards as revealed in the Bible, but based on their own lower standards. And you know what? We tend to grade ourselves on a curve, don't we? We pick those people who, who we're pretty sure that we're more righteous than, who are, we're not as bad. We throw in the Jeffrey Dahmers and serial killers and all those bad people or who we think are really bad, and, and, and we, we say, you know what? You know, if that's what they're doing, I'm up here, so I'm okay. But if people were to judge themselves based on God's law, then they would be overwhelmed by their sin like Martin Luther was when he was a monk. So as desperately as Luther wanted to be right with God, he didn't see how that could happen. How could he? What could he do? He tried everything. He knew there was no amount of good works, penance, fasting, prayer, confession, Hail Marys or Our Fathers that could make him righteous before a holy God. There wasn't enough money in the world that could buy him an indulgence that would cover his sin. Nothing he could do would be enough, not in light of God's holiness, God's righteousness, brothers and sisters in Christ, God is so holy and glorious and majestic. And Luther, he, he got that. He saw that. Martin Luther understood his sin and the holiness of God. What Martin Luther didn't understand was the grace of God and the love of God. He didn't understand the gospel, at least not yet. But to use another reformational phrase, after darkness, there was light. And that light that light came when, as a seminary professor and priest, a parish priest, Luther, tasked with teaching the Bible to the next generation of clergy and, and those who would be leaders in the church and, and performing Mass weekly, began studying and reading and teaching the book of Romans. And while teaching and preaching through Romans, he came to Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of God is powerful, cutting through the hardest of hearts. 
these two verses which provide the Apostle Paul's thesis in Romans would be used by God to rescue Martin Luther from hopelessness and bring him the peace that he so desperately sought with God. Here Paul tells the Romans that, that he is not ashamed of the gospel. According to the Romans and the Jews, he should have been ashamed of the gospel. What did the gospel got in Paul? Sent in prison, stoned, kicked out of synagogues. You should be ashamed of that, Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is God's way of powerfully saving all who believe, Jew or Gentile or Greek. And the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Just, just think about that. Put yourself in, in Luther's mindset. This monk who for years and years and years is seeking righteousness. But he knows that he can't get it. Well, it's a glorious phrase, this righteousness of God, that grabbed hold of Luther's heart. It means two things. First, the righteousness from God. And it describes a person having a right standing before God in a legal sense. It means that a person is declared just or righteous by God who is the judge. And that's what Luther knew he needed. I need the righteousness of God from God. And here it is in this passage. It's working through Romans, doing what I'm doing, preaching, teaching at a higher level, much higher level. And, and, and he comes across the righteousness of God. At the same time, the phrase, the righteousness of God, refers to God's righteous character his holiness and justice, and how God, through Jesus Christ's sin-atoning death, justifies sinners. And we can see this in verse 17 when we realize that the it, the it that Paul speaks of in verse 17 is the gospel, the person and work of Christ, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So righteousness of God is, is addressing two things, the righteousness that comes from God and how God makes a person righteous before himself. And so you see, this is why this verse turned the lights on for Luther. It's exactly what Luther longed for. Exactly what he knew he needed, but he could not find within himself. Righteousness. And we're so entertained and distracted and focused on so many other things. Our biggest problem is sin. And here in this text, Luther found the answer to his greatest problem. It's what he had tried to attain by becoming a monk and what he could not accumulate by following the unbiblical teachings of the Roman church. The righteousness that Paul speaks of here is not a righteousness that was his own or Luther's own, but the righteousness of God, a righteousness that was not inside of a person or attained by a person through good deeds or buying indulgences or, or doing enough good in the world, giving money to the church. This righteousness Paul speaks of in Romans 1.17 was from outside of a person. See, the whole time Luther was looking inside. He was, trying to, he was trying to muster up enough righteousness. But this righteousness was not dependent on a person, not Paul or Luther, any other human alone, but on God alone. It was a righteousness that Luther would describe as an alien righteousness. And not because it came from green aliens in outer space. But because this righteousness is not from or within us, it is the righteousness of Jesus. It is a righteousness earned by Christ alone. It is outside of us. It is alien to us. The Latin word imputation 
is used to describe how Christ's righteousness is reckoned to or applied to a believer. And at the same time, a believer's sin is applied to or reckoned to Christ. This double imputation, which happens in justification, is taught clearly in passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul uses, look, the same phrase, righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We, we sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, might become the righteousness of God. Here we see that the believer, the believer's sin is imputed to Christ. We are the guilty ones. We are, we, we are guilty of sin, but Christ is the guiltless one. And at the cross, God poured out his wrath on Christ so that our sin would be reckoned to or imputed to Christ. Our debt was put on Christ's account. The second imputation is that Christ's righteousness, which Luther needed, which we need, is applied or imputed to us. Christ takes our debt, and by God's grace, through faith, we are given what Christ has earned. What is it? Righteousness. The good news, then, is that Christ paid the penalty we could never pay for breaking God's law, and that having kept God's law perfectly, never sinned, lived a completely obedient, perfect life, Jesus is righteous, and his righteousness is imputed, reckoned, applied, throw whatever adjective you want on it, to us. That will take the weight of the world off your shoulders if you get what happens in imputation. And Luther got it. So the Christian stands before God now through this imputation, double imputation, based not on our righteousness, but on Christ's righteousness, covered by Christ. And that's how we are declared righteous before a holy God. Not by our works, but by Christ's works. That is the righteousness of God for all who believe. That is all from the scriptures. And it's all for those who, according to Romans 1.17, live by faith. Because the righteous are those who trust not in themselves. Who don't say, you know what, I'm going to clean up my life. And this is still going on. Theology has this way of getting distorted in every generation. And so people say that. I, I heard this just a few weeks ago. I'll come back to church when I clean up my life. No, 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 no. You can't clean up your life. You can't fix this. You need Jesus to fix it. So the same issues, the same problems that were going on then happen now. Sometimes they're called something different. Sometimes people don't make the connection. I'm trying to make penance. I'm trying to buy an indulgence. I'm not going to the church and doing this, but I'm doing it in another, in another way. Salvation is not partly by faith and partly by works. It is from the start to the finish by faith. Faith in Christ is how we receive the gift of salvation from God, and faith in Christ is how we live the Christian life. This is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that had been hidden behind false teaching, unbiblical traditions, indulgences, a corrupt system of penance that the Church of Rome had invented. And when this glorious gospel truth that justification was entirely by God's grace through faith in Christ, made its way by the Spirit of God through the Word of God into Martin Luther's heart, well, the switch was flipped. I, mean, I guess to use a better analogy, because there were not switches in the house, 
the candle was lit. God's beautiful light shone on Martin Luther, and this changed everything for Luther. Rather than just a book full of God's law, he came to see that the Bible contains the gospel. And so it became to Luther what it truly is, God's book that provides hope, assurance, comfort, and peace to all who trust in Christ. And though we may have had a a different experience than Luther did, the, the same reality is true for us. This doctrine changes everything. You stop looking inward for the answers, and you start looking outward to the word of God and ultimately to the gospel. How sweet and precious that is. And not just for the non-believer. It's definitely precious for you, non-believer, if you're here right now. There's no greater thing that you could hear from my mouth than justification is by faith alone. Only in Christ. That's the greatest thing that you could ever hear with your ears. You cannot get righteous on your own behalf. You can't do enough good. You're not a good enough person. Everybody else might tell you you're a great person. If you're outside of Christ, you're not a good enough person. You cannot be declared righteous in front of God based on your works, only by Christ's works. But here's the thing, believer. This doctrine doesn't get old. It's still just as precious and sweet as the first day we believed it. It rings true. It is, it is the, the tool that God so often uses to bring me back out of struggle, out of melancholy. I have been justified not by my works, but by Christ's finished works. I have been adopted. And, and how can I be confident? Oftentimes, you know what we do? We look to our own experience. I had this experience at camp one time. I raised my hand. I walked down the aisle. I, I prayed the, the prayer. You know, God might have used all that. Here's how you can be confident. Because Christ did it, not you. You have no hand in this salvation thing. He did it all. So you can be confident that the work that was needed, God has supplied in and through his son, Jesus Christ. For this reason, Luther made it a priority to get the word of God out to the people of God. He would do this by translating the Bible into German, preaching an almost unbelievable amount of sermons. I joke with some of my Lutheran family and friends that, that sermons in, in many, I don't, I don't want to stereotype here, but in many Lutheran churches are 10 or 15 minutes. That's my introduction, all right? We got to get into the text when we get together as the people of God. We got to feed the people. Luther preached for 40, 50, 60 plus minutes. He would expound the word of God. Hundreds and hundreds of sermons on, on one book. And some of you guys are like, we, we spent like a year in Exodus. Well, if that's a problem for you, just go back and, and think about what it was like for, for Luther's congregation preaching hundreds and hundreds of sermons on Deuteronomy, all right? But he knew that it's the word of God that changes hearts. And so he preached and he preached and he preached. And he, he wrote catechisms, some of which... I read uh, as an as a unconverted child. He wrote tracts in defense of the gospel and, and in response to indulgences. He wrote many books, enduring books, arguably the, the best being The Bondage of the Will, which in seminary helped shape and change my understanding of salvation. And he wrote his commentary on Galatians, which is, is phenomenal. The recovery of Scripture alone went hand in hand with the recovery of the gospel. And the primacy of the word of God in the Reformation can be seen in Martin Luther's explanation of how the Reformation happened. If, if 
you're not a church history person, I would encourage you to read some church history. There's some great introductory books that I get in your hands. But one of the things that will get you excited about reading Martin Luther is he says some funny stuff. Some, some really funny. I actually had to kind of edit this just so that nobody would be offended. Um, this quote that I'm about to share with you. But he has some really interesting um, quotes. So if you're somebody who likes quotes, read some Luther. And um, I think you'll be, you'll be not only encouraged, but you'll also laugh a little bit. Luther says in response to how the Reformation happened, I opposed indulgences in all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Luther preached hundreds of sermons. He risked his life. He was kidnapped by those who were protecting him so that he wouldn't be, be burned as a heretic. And he says, I did nothing. And do anything. The word did everything. And we believe the same. It's the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. Not from watching a show, not from me getting up here and dancing. I'm not a good dancer. Faith does not come from you just having an emotional experience. Here's how faith comes. From the word of God about Christ going forth and the spirit of God changing hearts. Friends, if you didn't already, I hope you now see that the Reformation was far more than some insignificant debate between theologians about things that don't matter anymore. The Reformation was all about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is at the very heart of the gospel. And we'll see it's still under attack. It is this truth that removed the heavy load that Luther had carried for so long, and it's the same truth that turns the light on and changes hearts today. Church, it's right for us to remember and thank God for the Reformation. And we should praise God for Martin Luther, even if we're not Lutherans. Because God used him to put the gospel back where it belongs in Christ's church. Front and center. So that all who know they are sinners before a holy God can hear the good news that the righteousness of God does not come by one's own works, but by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In the coming weeks, we'll see why the Reformation still matters and why it will always matter. But perhaps today there's someone here who is trying to make peace with God and thinks that they need to or, or they can even do something to earn God's favor, make penance and get right with God. Or maybe there's someone here that has given up hope because, like Luther, they've tried everything, but they know that they're too sinful and God is too holy. Well, there is hope for you, friend. Though it's true that like Luther, you can do nothing to justify yourself before a holy God, out of love and for his own glory, God has done what you and I could never do. Never. He has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death so that all whose faith is in him, all who live by faith in Christ will be declared righteous by Christ because of what he has done, not because of what we have done. The same righteousness that Luther discovered in Romans 1.17, the righteousness that is from God is for you, my friend. So ponder this reality. We're praying that the switch is flipped by the Holy Spirit in your heart and you would enjoy the wonderful, sweet gift that God has for you in Christ. This gift is for all who turn from their sin and look not inwards but to the cross. It is for all who trust in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. 
and how you have used it to bring about reformation then, and you continue to bring about reformation in your church and in our hearts. It is your word and your word about your son, about salvation, about how righteousness comes that has brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We pray, Father, that that we would be a church that holds fast to the gospel, that does not shrink back or try to entertain or set aside God-centered truth for man-centered ideas, because we believe what the scriptures teach. It is through hearing the word that faith comes. And so may you be glorified in this church and throughout your church in the world by the gospel going forth and people trusting in Christ and Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.